0: Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Before we get into our new stretch, um, we just want to follow up on last week, or if there's any other things that you want to bring your attention, we had a couple of questions at the end that we were thinking about as far as looking ahead to times of persecution versus times of popularity where Christianity is kind of okay to practice, and when it's not, um, any Anything that that came to your mind during the week? I had a couple things, but I'll let you have a shot first. on either, at either time always <coughs> um, if you, I, what I was thinking about this week was like what kind of form I don't think we can foresee what shape this would take I, don't, I doubt what we would ever come across is what the early Christians came across you know like they're gonna <coughs> cut our heads off or you know the, just strictly outlaw Christianity as such I, the chances of that would seem pretty remote what might that look like though um, Again, without being a prophet what, what I the best I could think of the thing that I could see most likely would be something related to like requiring agreement with something that we know not to be true you know that you know, you, you just have to say the right thing. Even though, as a Christian, I know this is not true, but I need to, I don't know, like sign a pledge uh, in, as a condition of employment that I'm not going to, maybe it's just keep your mouth shut, which in some cases we can understand that. Like, you know, like if I have a position in a, a government office, like I, I, I'm not there to preach. Yeah, got it, right? And that my job is not to, you know, recruit or whatever. I'm trying to keep, kind of keep, but where you can't, you where you are forced to say what you know not to be true. Um, and just sort of in my my head, it's kind of like this thing where you get called into the office by the boss or something like that and said, we saw something that you posted. On in the terms of your employment, you signed a piece of paper, and we got, we got used to signing things, terms and conditions, to things that we didn't read, because you couldn't read it because you're not a lawyer. And, and it's you know, like this long, and you're like, i am I gonna, I'm not gonna read these. I'm just gonna use the phone, I have to agree to the terms and conditions. <coughs> and it turns out, in those terms and conditions, where you may you know, we may survey all your accounts, and you let something slip, or maybe it's not in a you joke, know, public sort of setting like a social media thing, or it's just, you just set it in private at a meeting, at a church meeting, and they find out that that, that violates their, their um, what, whatever they call it. It's not gonna be like, you know, Christian persecution clause, <laughs> something like that. Um, where, we're, where we are faced, and do you suppose that those things are actually are, do already happen? I, I would imagine they do. Um, so again, I think it goes to like to have the conviction to be able to say, when, know, and to know the wisdom to know when the time is to say, No, I'm sorry. I'm right? not going to do that. Where did this all take place? In Europe or Turkey or where? The Roman persecutions all over the Roman Empire. Oh, okay. So everywhere in the Empire. The, the, law, the laws that were given were empire-wide at this point. So anywhere yeah. from, from Africa to England to uh, as far east as, as the Roman Empire went, all around the Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, so this, this next stretch we're going to talk about um, the, the kind of worship and sacramental life. What did church look like? in this time period. And it's tricky to to do this and like carve out this section and say this is how it looked compared to, you know, before, just before 250. Um, One story I'll tell because it it comes up um, 258. So it's in this time period during the Valerian persecution. Um, It's the story of St. Lawrence. uh, But we we talked about uh, Cyprian last time. Cyprian, he's the guy who uh, they tried. I think it was that same year. Two fifty-eight was, you know, uh, condemned to die. He's the one who said, "Thanks be to God." Took off his robes, kneelt, knelt down, blindfolded himself, said, "Thanks be to God," and then was beheaded. He had um, um, noted that the the, uh, the the normal thing that was going on was Christians who were who were uh, condemned. Were executed, um, And then what happened was that their, all their goods were confiscated by the, the imperial treasury. So if you got executed, if you were a criminal, all of your property be, became the property of the empire. Okay, so uh, 15, 258, same year that Cyprian was executed, August. Valerian um, issued the edict that all bishops, priests, and deacons should immediately be put to death. So the leaders... Get, get put to death and at this um, Pope Sixtus, well they call him Pope, he was the bishop of Rome, pastor in Rome, uh, Sixtus II is worshipping and so here's another glimpse into their worship life, they were in the cemetery this is where they had church not all the time but sometimes in particular they would do this, this is time, time of persecution so it could have been a, a way to kind of do it in the dark, secretly so um, it's not get caught But it was also, they did this purposely at at the graves of martyrs and Christians, particularly on the day of their death. So this is the origin of things like feast days. The Christians would remember these heroes that they had, who were willing to go to their death, instead of renouncing the Christian faith, they were their heroes. And so on the day of their death, in memory of them, giving thanks to God, they weren't worshipping them, but they would go to their grave and have a service. They did, this was fairly common. So early on, remember, you know, they were in secret, they were in the catacombs and, and um, also house churches, but we'll talk about that in a second. Question? Yeah, was that where they had the maybe, what did you say, torturous That's Where they put them in like a big chamber and put on or hang them up in the wall? Yes. We'll we'll see one in just a second if you if you want to say, not see one. But yes, yes, this is this is definitely this era. Um, they, they were not um, they were not they were not kind executions, um, right? Uh, what what do they say? Humane or what's the what's the the term for that? You know, nice executions. Um, so Sixtus, pastor and Rome, bishop of Rome. They, they kill him, they execute him right there in the cemetery. August, like, 6th, 258. Um, and so then the deacon of the church is named Lawrence. Uh, those in men's Bible study. We, we read through the, the account of St. Louis, that we're going to talk about here now. Um, it came up on the day of his death. was one of the Thursdays, that we, so we read that, that story. So he's the deacon, and they understood that the deacons were in charge of the treasury of the church, and so they arrested uh, Lawrence and required him that he, that he should hand over the churches because if you, if you were executed, your property became, so if the property of the head of the church is arrested and killed, his property belongs to the, to the empire. So they tell Lawrence, you must submit the treasury of the church, all the riches that belong to the church. Um, so he says, give me three days. And, and so in those three days, he hands out he distributes all the all the, the the treasures of the church to the poor, to the sick. He gives everything away, and then three days later, he's brought before the proconsul again, and he says, "and, and you know, says, okay, bring bring them forward." And he says, he 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 brings these people, the poor and the sick, that he had given them the treasures, and he says, he points to them and says, "these are the treasures of the church," um, and these have what does he he says he says these. Um, here are the treasures of the church. You see, the church is truly rich, far richer than your emperor. And of course, the emperor, the, the proconsul, gets so mad at this that he um, he orders a gridiron heated up um, and to to cook him on the on a gridiron. And uh, the story goes, this is probably legendary, but the story goes as he's he's cooking there. After a while, he he cheerfully looks up and says. I'm done on this side. You can turn me over. <laughs> um, that's two fifty-eight. So part of the part of the persecutions, um, and that was that that was August tenth. Then that took place. Um, so then, August tenth is the, the the feast of Saint Lawrence uh, in the church here. Uh, let's. So let's, on your sheet, let's talk first about the sacraments and how they're practiced. We did talk about that in the, in the first section. There was already in the early church a, a pretty um, uh, ornate, uh, fixed order for holy baptism. Like they had a, a, a rite and, a, and a, a liturgy, you might call it. Uh, for Holy Baptism. That that comes and is further developed and continues in this section. Now as as you have more, we talk about house churches. We're going to talk about this in a a second. This is one of the oldest, like intact uh, Christian house churches um, that have been found in in archaeology. One that has a separate room as a baptistry. Uh, Just there's I've got the quote on the sheet from St. Ambrose also from this time describing uh, baptism when he says when you dip you take on the likeness of death and burial so um, typically baptisms at this point were still done generally by immersion so and most of these would have been many of them adult baptisms so they did have a a space big enough for a a bath kind of thing and and you'll still see that a little bit um They didn't require that, but it it was typical. You take on the likeness and death, death and burial. You receive the sacrament of the cross because Christ hung on the cross and his body was transfixed with nails. You then are crucified with him. You cling to Christ. You cling to the nails of our Lord Jesus Christ, lest the devil be able to take you from him. At the selfsame moment, you died and were born. And that water of salvation was at once your grace and your mother. It's just a beautiful description of, of baptism. Um, it's useful for us to, to look into the, even the go way back church fathers and see them describing something like baptism. And I, I would say, we would say a hearty amen to, to the description of how effective baptism is because that's what the scriptures teach. You'll have, you know writers and theological church movements later on that will denigrate what baptism does. Um, as, as, if, as if the church sort of somehow made this up, this idea that baptism does this um, and does connect us to the cross of Jesus. Um, so they continue to hold baptism in high regard and vital for the life of the Christian church. So I guess that's all we'll say at this point. Um, And about the Lord's Supper, too. Um, The first statement on the sheet there is from the the history book, so it's not a primary source. But it's a summary of of what we see uh, of the Christian gatherings, that the central act of the assembled Christian community was the Eucharist or Holy Communion. This is the chief thing that they do as the church. When they come together, this is what they come together for, primarily. Right? it, that it isn't what um, in some in some cases even among Lutherans where where the Lord's Supper over time got relegated to sort of an occasional sort of important thing that we do but but very kind of tangential like it's it's an add-on like it's like oh we have communion today instead of saying of course we have communion today kind of thing um, that just to see that this this is the way that they thought of this, was this is what the Christian community comes together for. Um, it, was the, it was a unique addition to, say, synagogue worship of the Old Testament, that the Jewish Christians, Jews who believed in Christ, become Christian. They were already used to the synagogue service, gathering in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath, right, to hear the word of the Lord, um, to pray, they did all that. The thing that made it uniquely Christian worship was the body and blood of their crucified Christ. Yeah? Um, so uh, the Eucharist or, or Holy Communion Eucharist simply means Thanksgiving. We'll see that later on when they describe it. Celebrated by the ancient church every Sunday and all festival days. Um, we already saw in last week's thing about how when Constantine... Uh, converted to Christianity. Eventually he did make uh, Sunday, I don't have my that sheet in front of me, but Sunday, the, the official day of rest. And we might argue whether that's the place of the state or the government to, to decree that, but we see that what was practiced by the Christian was an, a definite um, practice that set apart the Lord's Day as the day for gathering. Um, all the way from the New Testament, you know, Paul, uh, Acts 20, on the Lord's Day when we were together, uh, when he writes to the Corinthians, when you, when you gather on the Lord's Day, uh, you eat and you drink, that this was central to the life of the Christian community. Early Christians who were, who were practicing um, Jewish Christians initially would have also probably celebrated, observed parts of the Sabbath too, the Saturday as well. Eventually that just kind of fades away, I think. There is some, some writers who write and say, in, in, con- in contrast to Saturday, we gather on the Lord's Day." Um, but I think probably for many, it simply became that, that it, it fulfilled the Sunday fulfilled the Sabbath. Does that make sense? Like it didn't necessarily replace it. it made it complete. It made it, what you did in the Sabbath, you did on the Lord's Day. Like, and it wasn't like this is our, simply our new Sabbath, although in a sense it was. Um, because this is, this is the, the rest that we have in Christ. It's in Jesus' resurrection, and I received the, the fruits of his resurrection by eating and drinking his body and his blood. Like, this is what the Sabbath was all about. Uh, and this is its fulfillment. Um, and so uh, this is then Martin Chemnitz. So Martin Chemnitz is a Lutheran. He's writing about antiquity, writing about this early church. uh, And he says, there are beautiful examples of frequent use of the Eucharist from true antiquity. Some had the custom of receiving the Eucharist daily. Some twice a week. Some on the Lord's Day. Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. Some only on the Lord's Day. So the kind of minimum was the Lord's Day is is the day. But there's all kinds of examples from, from the early church of They've got just different customs, and that's all right, you know. Some everyone was at least on the Lord's Day, but some, and you see this oh, as as the things develop. Wednesday and Friday become very typical extra days. Perhaps, perhaps our custom of of having like Lenten and Advent services on a Wednesday in the midweek, that when we do add it, I'm thinking that maybe Wednesday is not random. Like it may still go harken back to when they did have services, when they did have more than one, more than just the Lord's Day. But here it's actually talking about these are communion services that they would uh, have in addition to. Okay. Um, the the next section is going to give us um, give us a, a, a firsthand account of a service. And maybe before we do that, I want to talk about this this house church. Um, so this is in Dura-Europas, in, in what modern-day Syria. Um, and it dates to before 256. Okay? Um, so it's, it's maybe like 230s up to 256. We know that it in 256, uh, I'll explain why. We know that it was done then, because they buried it. Um, that it, it was a, a church. This is, I don't know if this is the way it looks today. So now it's Syria. And so, like, ISIS has pretty much destroyed a lot of sites. I don't know if this is, if it, maybe it's on just rubble now. I don't know. Um, But uh, a lot of study. It was still, oh, boy, I don't know when it was discovered. I didn't look that up or don't remember. Um, Early, like, I know there's a lot of work done post-World War I uh, to document what they were finding. So what happened is this is on the, oh, it's on the edge of a wall. So there's a street and then there's this building, and then right behind it was the city wall, okay? And it was being sieged in 256. And so what happened is, uh, this is like a recreation, but what happened is they, they basically, in order to, to sturdy up this wall, they fill it with dirt. And so here's the building, and eventually they have to add more and more dirt, and they, they eventually end up bur- burying it in order to protect the city. They kind of sacrificed this whole street of buildings, and they just buried it, which then it remained buried until the 20th century. <laughs> and they and and so, like, what got buried was what it was in 256. It's not like other sites that have been, you know, where the, the house was torn down, something else was built upon, and you have almost no um, archaeological evidence. It's just... Garbage. And yeah, like a um, a volcano that's in it, it covered up Pompeii Right. Where it's it suddenly it's suddenly encapsulated, sort of preserves it in in the way it was like in the middle of it didn't get you know, slowly degrade and things like that, that. So that's what we have with this. And that's sort of how they're they're able to imagine. Um, this recreation based on the evidence that they find, but they found particularly in this room this is what's generally recognized as the baptistry so it's, it's a house um, and when we think house church don't think of like it's, a, it's someone's house and they just, they just get a group of ten people get together in someone's living room it, was, it may have been a house just a, a family's home a large home um, and then converted to a church um, possibly the family still lived in some rooms. There were probably rooms up above this, um, but there are a number of rooms, and, and various scholars will, will they'll guess at what happened in these other rooms. Like, where did they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and where did they do the teaching? You know, they think they called someone called this the Sunday School room. Um, I that those I think are just mainly guesses, um, but it's the artwork inside mainly that identifies it as a Christian church so it 's not a standalone church like a building built just as a church, um, so we would call it a house church, but it 's not like just like I said people having coffee in someone 's living room like it's it, it was it was a dedicated space at this point, but still two fifty six still during persecution times too not um, when it becomes legible, you see something very different when it comes to churches. So this is some of the artwork that they found, and this is a recreation of that baptistry room with some of the artwork that they found in the places where they found it. Um, I'm sure the ceiling is a total recreation, but some of the artwork like this on the walls that they find, which is uh, a depiction of Jesus healing the paralytic. You see, his is carrying his bed there, um, and this one we we. I think I showed this one last spring. We see Jesus, the good shepherd, carrying the sheep on his shoulders, and other sheep. It's a very common early Christian artistic motif. Um, Jesus is the good shepherd. So likely, like, likely this is the kind of setting for something like this. Now, But this, this um, liturgy is in Jerusalem, and this is 350. So this is following... Uh, Christianity becoming legal. So it's a little bit different time when this is done. Um, so, well, let's let's mention that right away then. The type of churches that you'd have built after that, um, once Constantine converts to Christianity, Christianity is legal, uh, then they're able to build churches. And, you know, Constantine himself starts paying money to build churches like the church in Constantinople, Jerusalem. Uh, at these these, these sites, uh, the, what they're known as basilica style, uh, which was a style that was previously used um, and still was as a public like a public forum in Roman buildings. So this would be a place where the, the emperor or the ruler meets with the people, which I think is significant, right? Um, you have and so you'd have like like always have this this arch. And an a, a elevated space, which was where the, the ruler would address his, his people or the judge. There's an early uh, picture when Pontius Pilate, uh, the governor, is, is on the platform where he, he sentences Jesus to execution. Uh, there's a depiction of that where it has this similar sort of space where you have the, the ruler speaking uh, uh, to the people. And so the, the churches that they create, they use the same style that they used for public use, then they built churches in the same. Um, And none of these ones are, I don't know the dates on on these, they're old, but they'd also, they'd have these columns typically, columns with a central thing, (laughs) nave we might call it, usually multiple levels, windows, you'd have buttresses so that they could build the walls up high. So very early, that's, that's the kind of space. Not every community is going to have one of these this big for sure, but they are able to build churches. All right, so Eucharistic Liturgy in Jerusalem, 350. A lot of things to see in here. So this is from Cyril of Jerusalem. I think he's probably on our sheets somewhere, but I don't know exactly where, but it's around 350. In Jerusalem. So then the deacon cries aloud, Receive one another, let us kiss one another, but do not think that this kiss is the same as those given in public by ordinary friends. This kiss reconciles souls with one another and wins complete forgiveness. This kiss then is a sign of the blending of souls and the banishing of all remembrance of wrongs. For this reason, Christ said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, go first to be reconciled to your brother. The kiss then is one of reconciliation. So have any of you ever been to a church where they have this thing called passing of the peace? Ever, anyone ever seen that? <laughs> and, and, where, where it's basically they tell everyone to go and shake hands with everyone? Okay, they might, so they might not call it passing of the peace? But that's where, where they, I mean, sometimes it's more informal, like, you know, just after church or before church. I just greet people. It, it, that, I think that, that has its origins in this, except that it's a very different thing. So what you have here is uh, the, the, the kiss of peace was basically Christian reconciliation. So it's in reference to Jesus uh, in Matthew 18, where he, you know, he, or Matthew 5, it is, you know, go be reconciled first to your brother if you're on your way to the, to the altar. It's, it's forgiveness, it's reconciliation with one another. Um, you know, not so much forgiveness, um, you know, that I'm forgiven before God, but that I am I'm reconciled to my brother. Um, I don't think that a handshake doesn't mean. You know, people will shake hands with people they're mad at all the time. Um, but that's kind of the idea. That was the idea behind it. Um, and I think a, 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 a tiny a tiny um, remnant of that is what we have in some ways um, in the phrase in the liturgy, right after the words of institution, the peace of the Lord be with you. Peace of the Lord. Um, that the, the, the reconciliation comes from, from Christ. Um, <laughs> Next, the priest cries aloud, "Lift up your hearts." We we saw that already earlier from the apostolic constitutions, already in the 100s, "The the Lord be with you, and with your spirit." Lift up your hearts. The source cordum. That's the oldest tidbit of the liturgy that that we see that they were doing in a very very early period, but it's still here. Lift up your hearts. Then you reply, "We have them with the Lord." Lift we lift them up to the Lord. Then the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. That's still our liturgy, right? Then you say, it is worthy and just. Um, It is truly good and right that we should at all times. That's where that comes from. After this, we make remembrance of heaven and earth, of sun and moon and of stars and all creation, rational and irrational, visible and invisible. Our angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, whom Isaiah beheld encircling the throne of God as they sing, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. For this reason, we recite the very same hymn of God's praise. There we go, right? The Sanctus, holy, holy, holy. We still do that today. Why? Because we believe that we are in the presence of God, just as Isaiah was. And so we join in the song that they sing in the presence of God, holy, holy, holy. Uh, That we may have fellowship with the super cosmic hosts in their hymn of praise. Then, having sanctified ourselves by these spiritual hymns, we call upon God, the lover of men, to send his Holy Spirit upon the gifts that are set forth. That he may make the bread the body of Christ, and the wine the blood of Christ. For whatever the Holy Spirit shall touch is sanctified and changed. Um, There's a par- couple parts of this. Um, what are, It talks about the gifts that are set forth. So they didn't have offering plates where you'd put in cash or a check and, uh, and, and bring it to the altar. What they would bring to the altar would be their gifts. Among which was bread and wine as well as gifts that would be given to the poor. And they would collect these and bring them to the, to the front, and part of which would be set the bread and the wine, which would be then used for for the, the sacrament. Um, and so then in response to this, the communion liturgy then gives thanks for these things, calling upon God that he would, as it says, he would make the bread the body of Christ. Um, we're, we're presenting these gifts, and in... Th- and and then the, then the, the process is, <laughs> which which come from where, right? So so the gifts that we have, don't come from us really, do they? Right. The things that we would bring forward, the you know we bring forward the fruit and the pumpkins, um, uh, they, they came as gifts from God, right? There's this wonderful exchange. But God gives the gifts, right? Well, and, and he doesn't give the gifts. He doesn't give the pumpkins directly. What does he give? He gives seed, right? And we, in a sense, give it to God. We put it in the ground. We plant it. And God produces, God bountifully receives, gives to us back far more than we gave to him, right? Because you, you, you plant the one seed, and you get a whole stalk. And you get, or, you know, you get a whole tomato plant. With all, all these tomatoes, it's bountiful. Always, always the way God gives back to us is more bountiful than what we gave to him. What we did with anything. So we put the seed in the ground. He grows the... Um, yeah, so we plant the, the, the vine. The vine produces the grapes. And we've got grapes. Grapes are good, right? We can do things with grapes. And, you know, that, that would be good. We can eat them. We can make them into wine. But if we bring them to the Lord, we bring the grain to the Lord... He goes and he turns around to faithful believers who, who love him and who receive He turns around and gives it back to us. But far more than what we gave to him. We gave him him grapes, or he gave him wine, we gave him grain and bread, and he turns around and, and says, oh, this is my body. This is my blood. <laughs> he always far, gives far more to us than we would ever give to him. But... But so we, we pray that he would do this, that he would uh, bless us. Um, what, what part of the liturgy would we be doing this in? Um, this is part of the, the, the Eucharistic prayer, that Thanksgiving prayer. So this is our Thanksgiving to God. That, you know, As it turns out, the way that we give thanks to God is by giving him our gifts, but then he turns around and gives them back to us, Far more abundantly, um, and the words of institution by which the words by which Jesus uh, calls this forth, then, after the spiritual sacrifice, the bloodless worship has been completed upon that sacrifice of propitiation, we entreat God for the common peace of the church, for the right order in the world, for kings, for prayers, and allies, for those who are burdened with sickness and overwhelmed with sorrows. In a word, we pray and offer this sacrifice for all who stand. In need of help, who does that sound? What does that sound like? The prayer where we pray for kings and those in authorities, and the sick and the sorrowing and the prayer of the church. Then we make a remembrance also of those who have fallen asleep before us. First the patriarchs, the apostles, the martyrs, and at their prayers and intervention, God may receive our petitions, then for all who have fallen asleep from among us believing that it will be of great advantage to these souls for whom the supplication is offered that while, while that holy and awesome sacrifice is presented. Now, you'll have some hints in there of things that are to come in the church that we might be hesitant about. The idea that somehow our prayers are going to benefit, it makes it almost sound like that. So we might find things that, that lead to other errors when, when reading old things. I don't know if that's exactly what's meant here by that. It might be totally innocent, but those who believe that the prayers of the church, we pray for the saints and for benefiting them, they might read something like this and say, aha, see, Uh, which we we would not, because that contradicts the rest of Scripture, right? 11, top of the next page. Then after these things, we say that prayer, which the Savior delivered to his own disciples, our Father, Uh, always a part of the communion liturgy. After this, the priest says, holy things to those who are holy. Then you add, one is holy. One is Lord Jesus Christ. Um, holy things to those who are holy. This was a, a, a statement, basically a practice of close communion. They did not, um, so in the, in the, the church's worship, they, they had two main parts. You had the service of the catechumens um, or the, the, the curious or the interested, and then you had the, the service of the faithful or the service of the Eucharist, the sacrament. And at that point, um, in, in this early church, the the catechumens, the, the those who were not the unbaptized were not allowed to even be in. They would close the doors. They had someone there. Someone they cry out the doors, the doors, and they would they would uh, usher out the those who, the, the, the catechumens and such, and the the, the sacrament was celebrated. I'm just saying secret, but only with it was the service of the faithful. Um, After this, you hear, we've talked about this before, they had to be careful, um, especially in times of persecution, um, with how they received people into the church. Um, And then the other thing that you see in this time, a very careful sense of discipline. Now, we talked about that last time with the the persecutions, when people did sign the labellus and they gave up the faith, or they they, they said that they, they renounced it publicly. Um, and they were, they were excommunicated. So those who, they could still come to the first part of the service, but for a time, if they wanted to be received back in, they couldn't attend uh, the second half. After this, you hear the voice of the chanter inviting you with a sacred melody to the communion of the holy mysteries. As he sings, taste and see that the Lord is good. So an example, the, the Psalms were all over the liturgy. They still are. Um, and the, the Psalms are songs. Psalms are songs. Psalms are songs. That's, that's what they are. 21, um, uh, as you approach then, make of your left hand as if a throne for your right, which is about to receive the king. And in the hollow of your hand, receive the body of Christ, replying amen. This is an interesting one. So uh, an indication that in the early church, it was at least a, a practice to receive the, the body of the Lord in the hand, not just in the mouth. I, what I understand is that the, the practice of of, of of receiving it directly in the mouth and as requiring it came later when sometimes people would take the host and they would not eat it um, that was that was part of the problem that they would take it home and, they, and, and, and thinking of it as some kind of superstitious thing, maybe give it to someone who wasn 't able to receive like that like you know, that someone who was excommunicated or something like that or get i don 't know give it to their dog or something. Um, and to prevent, to avoid that is later on, they said, no, you have to receive it in your mouth. That way, you know, ah, make sure you swallowed it. Um, they didn't. don't think they did that, but. So did they take loaves of bread and care off? Um, I don't know did if particularly. They sure didn't have So, yeah, the, yeah, they would have had some kind of a flat bread. And, and it sounds like they generally did continue to use unleavened bread like the Passover had used. Um, the practice of, of baking individual wafers, though, interestingly, um, by the Reformation, by Luther's time, the, all the artwork that you see of people communing uses little circle wafers. So I don't know at what point they moved to that, and I think that that practice probably came from a desire not to have a bunch of crumbs later. That's my guess. Just You just wanted to be careful with... Um, the, the bread that was used in this sacrament, and so it maybe at some point they said let 's wait this i 'm tired of dealing with all the crumbs, so let 's just bake it <laughs> already already broken i don 't know at what point that is, but by the reformation that 's what you see in the painting, so I, you know at, at what point that shifts i don 't know um, but it was it's surprising it was surprising to me to see that in Reformation stuff like I would have expected that to be like a nineteenth century thing or you know even twentieth century thing. But it goes back, we're, we're at least 500 years into, into that practice. It's got some, it's got some track record <laughs> by now. Um, uh, but, but you see what they do there. So it's not just receive it in your hand. I love this description. Um, make of your left hand as if a throne for your right. So put, with that, remember what you're doing here. You are about to receive the king. This is the throne of God right now. I've told, uh, conformance when practicing for you know, If you're going to use your hand, I think I've used the phrase. It's like a manger, but this. But I think maybe this is even better. This. This is a throne for the king, and you're about to receive your king. I, I think if a person thinks thinks that, um, that does that can go a long way to remember what you're doing when, when you're receiving the sacrament. Nice little reminder. Then after the communion of Christ's body, approach also the the cup of his blood, bending forward in an attitude of reverence and reverence, saying amen. Then wait for the prayer and giving thanks to God who has redeemed you worthy of such great mysteries. Um, The next section is an example of a a prayer. This comes from, it's called the Liturgy of St. James, late late 4th century, so late 300s. Um, But you'll recognize this. Uh, the deacon says, let us, let us pray in peace to the Lord, which sounds awful like, like in peace, let us pray to the Lord. It's like this, this, come to us, we still have this, help, save, pity, and defend us, O God, by your grace. That's part of that prayer, help, save, how does it go? Goodness. Gracious Lord, but it's, it's, it's the same, um, for the peace which comes from above, for God's goodwill and our, for our salvation. So it's slightly varied, but we've heard those words before. Lord, we pray to you uh, for the peace of the whole world and the unity of all the holy churches. Lord, we pray to you uh, for this responsive prayer where the the people join in in their response, um, which is kind of what we we still have, for the peace of the whole world, for this whole holy community and for the whole Catholic and apostolic church stretching from one end of the earth to the other. Again, response, Um, just a word about by this time the, the church year um, isn't as fully developed you don't have the, the, the whole thing but, but surprisingly very early it starts to take shape um, starting with uh, starting with Passover the Christian Pascha feast uh, is Easter right and that whole that centered in anchoring the whole life of the Christian centering around uh, celebrating What Christian Pascha, the the, the Paschal feast, which we call Easter, Good Friday, that whole that whole thing, Um, and then the rest of the year kind of following along with that. Pentecost, of course, is tied to that early celebration of Pentecost Um, and Epiphany, uh, which actually doesn't come later. But Christmas actually is later, even still. Epiphany is older. And, and, and very early then, they're determining certain readings to be read. Uh, one of the, the texts that's very commonly used in figuring out what copies of the New Testament say were books called lectionaries. So very early, they would take the texts that were to be read on certain Sundays and certain feasts and put them into a standalone book so that you didn't have to page through to find the, the section. You'd have, you know, the page for the Feast of the Ascension. And you have those already in the third century. I'm sorry, the fourth century in the 300s. Um, and so many of the, many of the, 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 the texts that we'll read in church today still follow that same pattern. They might not be identical, but they follow the same pattern um, uh, that they had set very early on. And then I mentioned the feasts, like the feast of, uh, of the martyrs on the anniversary of their death, typically. Um, that's what, that's what started those, and so they would have. The Lord's Day was central, and, and then you, the, the Lord's Day would start to start to form. There was a controversy early on about the date of Easter, which related to whether or not it's always on a Sunday, or do you try to follow the the, the Jewish still the Jewish calculation of when Passover is, because Passover in the Old Testament would not have necessarily fallen on the same day of the week. It would moved around based on the, the lunar calendar, um, and so you'd have. Passover would be whenever whenever it fell. But then the Christian, well, and then the others, so some Christians would say, well, let's just keep doing that, right? So we'll just celebrate Christian Passover whenever Passover was. And then the others said, no, it's got to be on the Lord's Day because the Lord rose on the first day of the week. And so how do you, you know, it's usually right around the same time, but there was quite a conflict about how do we determine that Sunday one uh, (laughs) in the grand scheme of things, uh, as far as most people have practiced. But if... Wasn't a bad argument to have. Uh, not necessarily right or wrong. Um, yeah. So the, the church here develops pretty early. Also, um, just what what they wore. Uh, what what tends to happen is generally the the, like the clergy wearing in the service. They basically wear typical Roman garb. Um, the The Roman tunic. So not like the toga, like the, the wrapping around, but the, the plain old ordinary uh, garb. The alb was, in which it would have been already in Jesus' day. Um, and it seems like over church history, what happens is in church the clergy just don't get stay with the times, and they just wear what they wear what they wore, um, and 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 so like they don't. When fashions change, they don't. Update that happens with a number of things, so they just keep on wearing that. When, when other fashions change, the clergy doesn't; they, they don't do that. Um, that's sort of the, the story, which uh, is clerical wear for, for uh, clergy is not a vestment; it's not a service garment; it's just a daily wear. But the the way that that came from, typically, um, clergy wore a, a distinctive color, light, namely black. Um, um, but the interesting like you know, like a collar like this and i, I don 't know if you any of you would remember this maybe see i 've seen it in movies where men 's dress shirt collars were removable Have you ever seen that where they had studs and, and you, you, so you 'd take it off you see them like undoing their their collar and they could take it off right that 's exactly what this is only on backwards. The opening is in the back instead of in the front the, those collars would have opened. Instead of a flat flip-down collar that we have now, that it was it was buttoned on. But then you could take that off and wash that. And you didn't have to wash the rest of the shirt. As a, this is just a practical thing, and so it's an older fashion that you know the, the clergy just never got with the times. <laughs> Still wore the old old stuff. Yeah. and it was you know it's kind of like we're not we're not keeping up with the styles and the and all the whatever whatever's cool today. We. We can't uh, get through all the discussion of, of hymnody in this in a little bit. I don't want to give it, I don't want to shortchange it. Um, so we'll probably have to pick it up a little bit next time, but I'll, I'll introduce it. We have a number of hymns that do date from this time. With the last section, we had a couple, or at least one, a shepherd of tender youth from before 250. Um, the story is um, <laughs> one, one source of it, it starts with the. the, the Arians, the her- heretics, we haven't talked about that heresy yet, well, that will be coming up, but the Arians who were teaching a different thing about Jesus, they were using hymns to spread their doctrine, their false teaching about Jesus, that Jesus wasn't really true God. And the, the Orthodox bishops realized that that was, that was working. What people sing, they take into themselves very deeply and they were believing it because they were singing it. So they had these little ditties that the Arians would, would use to teach people that Jesus wasn't true God. Um, and so in some ways, hymn writing came as a response to that. <laughs> well, if they're going to do that, we better, we better have our own. Um, you do have our hymns in the New Testament and earlier hymns. But, um, so there was a pattern already in the Greek and the Syriac churches of writing hymns. Um, uh, earlier and earlier, we'll talk about Hilary. He's going to be one of our church fathers that we talk about. Except, like, it, we're told that he was a hymn writer, and he had all these hymns, but we have no, none of them exist. None of them survive. We have no idea what they were. <laughs> we're just told that he did write hymns. Um, it's really Ambrose. St. Ambrose, and we'll talk we'll about a whole section on him, um, who becomes, the, he's called the father of church song. And his typical style of hymn writing, these are in Latin, um, his style of hymn writing uh, is it, it's the same. It's so very standard. It's eight, uh, four verse iambic diameters, di- diameters, uh, in eight stanzas of those. So you have eight stanzas. A stanza being, you, know, you have a verse. A verse is a line in a hymn. So if this is a hymn stanza, this is a line, this is a stanza. I mean, this is a verse, this is a, a stanza. We sometimes will. We'll, we'll talk about, uh, you know, verse one. But technically, this is a verse. <laughs> a verse is a poetic line. Um, and then you have in four verse stanzas, or strophes. Um, and so he'd write these. He wrote a lot of them, and there's a lot of them that are attributed to, to uh, Ambrose, but really only four that are for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, one of them being... Uh, this one, uh, you know it. Uh, just a, as an example, this, this iambic diameter. Iambic, an iamb is a, is a bum bum, bum bum, bum bum. It's a short long, short long, short long, short long. Uh, uh, in one short long, that's an iamb. Okay? And so this, this bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, bum bum. What does that sound like? bum 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 Sounds like a heartbeat. Usually, that's what it's... It, it, it... it. Uh, so you have that Veni redemptor gentium, ostende partum virginis, Mirator, omni seculum, pa-bom, talis dacia partus deum. This you know as Savior of the nations, come. Virgin Son, make here your home. Luther took that, this Latin hymn, and he brought that into German. That's so what we have in Savior the Nations Come. This, this hymn is a morning hymn, we don't have that. We have two hymns from Ambrose in our hymnal. Um, the other one is the morning hymn. Oh, Splendor of God's glory bright is the other Am- Ambrose. But then you have a bunch of others that are kind of copycat that use the same meter that are, we would say, ambrosian, but they're not, we can't trace it to, to Ambrose himself. Supposedly the Te Deum is, is written by Ambrose on the on the occasion of of augustine's baptism i, I that's what, that's kind of the that's the word on the street, but I, I don't necessarily have like historical proof that, that that is the case. It's a wonderful wonderful song. It doesn't fit this it's not this it's not a, a hymn like that. The Tea Deum is uh marvelous, but it's it's usually attributed to to Ambrose Prudentius, I put him down because I've got this. Uh, of the Father's love begotten. Um, that's from this era. The other Christmas hymn of the. Uh, what else did I put on the sheet? I do have a couple of quotes regarding him, um, Nadi, from Amblos, where he says, If you praise God without singing, you do not have a hymn. If you praise anything but not to the glory of God, even if you sing it, it is not a hymn. Um, And then Augustine describing him, his reaction to the hymns of Ambrose, um, how he tears did I shed over the hymns of in canticles when the sweet sound of the music of thy church thrilled my soul, as the music flowed into my ears and thy truth trickled into my heart, the tide of devotion swelled high within me, and the tears ran down and there was gladness in these tears. Um, And Prudentius, who wrote Prudentius wrote the hymn. uh, what did I just say? Uh, of the Father's love begotten. Of the Father's love begotten. And you can hear that's a, so it's a chant type. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That, that melody for it, but it, it just kind of flows. It's plain song or uh, plain chant versus metrical hymnody like you have here. Okay. You have both in, in, in Latin. You have this metrical hymnody. Um, and it's very rigorously structured. And then you have plain chant, which is just sung on a, on a, and a according to a formula. Yeah. I'm sure there's more to say on hymn. <laughs> uh, but uh, that that becomes the beginning of the hymnody of this era. And they add on to every age, adds on a little bit more. Um, But we get to still use the stuff from the old. We don't have to throw away just because if we threw away everything, um, well, we we don't grow then and we get to to use what, what came before us. I think that's our time. Shall we close with God's Word is Our Great Heritage?